Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Wyndham Garden Lafayette. From the French Press in downtown Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Maida, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business, Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Maida. Lafayette is not necessarily an easy place to raise money. People are generous here. There's no doubt about that. And Southern hospitality is certainly a local specialty, but people around here value independence and self-determination. Plus, they like a business idea to make business sense, which means they ought to make money and survive on their own. That presents a challenge to nonprofits, both large and small. How do you make a big impact on a lean budget? How do you build for the long term when all the money you get goes to the important and expensive work that you're doing now? My guests today both run nonprofit organizations that fill important gaps in important community services. Abby Falgu is the executive director of the Lafayette Education Foundation. And for close to 30 years, LEF has filled funding gaps for Lafayette schools and teachers. The foundation is primarily a granting organization with a tiny staff and is best known perhaps for the annual Teachers Award, a glitzy gala that celebrates the best teachers in Lafayette Parish. Abby took over as executive director in 2019. She's also an entrepreneur who's worked in marketing, real estate, and hospitality. Abby, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thanks. Thank you for having me. My next guest runs a wildlife rehabilitation center out of her house in Youngsville. Letitia Labe founded her tiny but effective nonprofit, Acadiana Wildlife Education and Rehabilitation, in 1998. Uh, Acadiana Wildlife has taken in more than 6,000 birds and small animals over the years, which she treats at enormous cost and mostly on her own. Letitia is currently raising money to establish a permanent treatment center that's not her home. Letitia, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you very much for having me here. So, Abby, um, it's not really a secret, right, that public education can be a sore spot in this area. Um, generally, I think the perception is often that the school system underperforms, and that's been the case for a long time, right? Um, but your organization you know, provides money and looks for ways to stimulate and support good ideas, right? And you know, I'm thinking a lot of money has gone, not just from you, but generally speaking, into the school system. I mean, has it really made a difference in your mind? Yeah, it's a really interesting conversation. Um, one of the realities I had to address when taking on this role about nine months ago was that this uh, LEF has been around for 30 years. And although a lot of good has come from the work we've done 30 years, it can be very disheartening to think that 30 years we haven't really, you know, waved a magic wand and changed everything and made it perfect. Um, and so it, a part of it is that we have to start to address whose role is what, like who is responsible for public education, and what the role of public education is in the community as a whole. Um, and that starts to change the conversation, I think, and I think Lafayette is struggling a little more than, than other places with this because of that, because of this conversation and this idea that, like you said, it's all individualistic. We really put a lot of burden on the individual. Um, but the problem with that concept when it comes to public education is regardless of where you choose to send your children, regardless of where you were educated, regardless of um, individual circumstances throughout the community, we all 
either suffer or benefit at the hand of public education. It is the wellspring of all things good and evil in, the, in any community. And we have not fully embraced that completely. So if our economy is struggling, if our workforce isn't up to what it's supposed to be, if crime is high, if drainage isn't working well, I, really, you can trace this all back to um, a failing education system. And I will say that even though um, letter grades, you know, may come into factor, or data from test scores will show that some of our schools are A pluses, a, a, a lot of our schools are doing exceptionally well. Um, you know, overall, our school system is not failing. Hmm. But I don't know if you ever get to a day where a school system does everything we need it to do. That can be very frustrating for people. But the truth is that um, something that's as paramount as education system will it always needs to be worked on. There always needs to be more collaboration. There always needs to be something brought to the table more than what we have. So is it, is it, it almost sounds like there's a difference between the wider perception maybe of how good the schools are, maybe what the reality is. I mean, it sounds like maybe that's where it is or is it an issue of accountability? I and mean, where, where do you see that actually, that rubber meeting the road? Yeah, it's interesting. So we a lot, a lot of times we look at test scores for, for schools and you will easily see that higher socioeconomic status areas have higher test scores. Um, but if you go into the, some of the what transformation zone schools is what they refer to, these schools that have been failing for years and years out, the transformation zone was designed from Lafayette Parish School System, and a lot of other school systems use this, to kind of like an um, intensive care intervention. How do we get these schools the resources they need and, um, and bring them out of the failing area of things? When you go into those schools, there are amazing things that are happening in those schools. But the test results may not show that at the end of the day. What's happening is that those amazing things are also coupled with vast amounts of trauma and poverty or other things that, you know, are most kids in this school in the school system that are going to some of the higher end schools and the more you know, successful schools, if you, you might want to say, um, are getting those resources up from other places. And some of these kids on the uh, other parts of town are not. And so it's really like most things like this. Um, education is one of those problems that is incredibly complex. And so there is no silver bullet. There's no easy answer to any of it. There's no quick fixes. So, Leticia, uh, my understanding is, you know, it's tremendously expensive to do the work that you do in rehabbing these birds, like on an individual basis. And one thing that uh, really stood out to me was that, you know, during Hurricane Barry, you took in a lot of birds, right? And you make this call out to the community to help, you know, I, these, these is a third as many birds as I get in a year, Right, and, and you sort of the turnaround there is like $200. Here's 200 bucks, and you might spend $80,000 a year. So, um, you know, one thing that's obvious to me is when you're primarily dealing with, you know, wild birds, that there's nobody you can bill, right? If I bring my dog to the vet. Correct. Right, so, so how, do you, how do you manage to stay afloat if the costs are that high? Um, I do a lot of creative um, financing at home. Yeah. Um, there are times where I will eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to make sure that a bird of prey ends up with a quail. So um, the problem is, in, under federal law, I can't charge people to do this. Um, I'm a considered a volunteer. Under federal law, I have to be regulated by both state and wildlife, uh, state fisheries and also the federal wildlife and fisheries because I deal primarily with birds which are protected under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. But the general public thinks that because I have a permit and I've done thousands and thousands of hours of education and training on this, that I should just accept them free of charge. 
And you can't really turn people away when they show up with an injured bird, so I'll accept them. And then I go dig into my savings and I beg on Facebook to have people donate things. Um, so it's really hard. Um, education, I guess, is the biggest key to what I'm trying to do right now is to educate the public that there's a need. Um, some states have ex enormous wildlife centers that have corporate sponsors and funding and grants and 20, 30, 40 to 100 people working at them doing different jobs. In Louisiana, we have five individual rehabilitators in the entire state that do birds. We have maybe 20, 30 in each area that do mammals, but none of us receive funding. We all pay out of pocket. So wildlife and fisheries, right, the State Department regulates you, puts some, the federal government, I presume, does that too, and they're, they're putting sort of some, some blocks of what you can and can't do, who can and can't do this work, yet they're not providing funding for what it seems to be, you know, an essential service for protecting wildlife. We do not receive any funding from the state or federal government, and there's very few grants or organizations that actually donate to wildlife rehab. Uh, it's really hard, and when you're doing everything from cleaning cages to medicating animals to building cages and renovating buildings and trying to educate the public, and you get no funding, and, but you have to follow guidelines and regulations. Um, and the regulations are there for a reason, because people in the general public will get information off of Internet on how to feed things, and not all babies eat worms. And so you have to get them to someone who can do it properly and release them back into the wild. So it's kind of a catch-22. I can tell the people to put it back, leave it alone, or let nature take its course, or I take it in and I bite the bullet and I eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a month, and I feed and protect them and get them back into the wild. So, I mean, it strikes me that, you know, whether we're talking about, let's say, the public school system or, you know, helping injured wild animals, right? There's a sense that there ought to be, or there, there could be, right, you know, typical corporate sponsors or individual sponsors who might would say, I feel like this is important, I'm going to help. I mean, is, is there no one doing that to back your work? Um, it is very rare to get anyone to make a donation. Um, I have a few corporations that will donate a little bit from time to time, um, and I call them my sponsors because they will donate if I ask, but then it's to get out there and really go ask takes away from the time I put in with the animals. So um, my veterinarian is big, my biggest sponsor only for the fact that he doesn't charge um, anything for his services for my wildlife, and he's been doing that for over 30 years for me. Um, but other rehabilitators don't have that luxury. They go to a vet and they get charged for the medicines and they get charged for the services. It's just... We would love to have corporate sponsors, and we have enough corporations in this area that would get a tax write-off um, to be able to just probably build a cage or help to build a structure or even donate food to sponsor an education bird or a rehabilitation bird. That would be awesome, but it's like they don't want to contribute. So I don't know what to do to get the people to understand. And it, if I had a center I, where children could come and people could come, it seems like they'd be more willing to make donations. But right now I'm in a two-bedroom house with 
anywhere from 20 to 30 birds at a time. And like over the hurricane, I had almost 100 birds at my house. So, Abby, I'm curious, what does that balance look like for y'all? I mean, your staff is not very big either. Um, and, And certainly any challenge for a nonprofit is balancing, say, the work of raising money and the work of doing the work. I mean, how does that actually look for you in terms of how you're, you know, your breakdown? Right. Um, it's a constant daily struggle for sure because um, you, we. I will say that it's out of whack lately for sure. We have been spending a lot more time than we should soliciting funds because um, we've seen, and not just LEF, but it's, you interview any nonprofit executive director, they'll tell you the same thing. There's been a sharp decline in this area and um, probably nationwide, but especially in this area in charitable funds and donations. Um, individuals have risen quite a bit, so we're getting much more individual donations, especially like monthly donations from individuals, which is paramount, by the way, um, for the work that we do. But a lot of the other corporate giving has gone to the wayside a little bit. We still have wonderful corporate donors as well, but um, there is seems... Is primarily an economic thing? I mean, they're looking at the market tanks, and so... I have a, a, different, a little bit slightly different perspective, I think, than most people have. My background's in PR, as you are aware of, but... Um, I don't find as many organizations, until you get to much bigger corporations, have someone head of CSR or mm-hmm. have a PR person who... Corporate social responsibility. Responsibility. Yeah. And so, or you don't have someone on staff that's really looking for opportunities for them to give back and then use it to, to boost the bottom line. Um, because, you know, any organization, especially LEF, is always interested in a sustainable relationship. Well, I want it to be just as mutually beneficial to the organization that donates as it is to us. And um, there are plenty of ways to do that, but there's no one responsible for it. So everyone's taking on two or three jobs, which is an economic issue for sure. Um, and everyone's stressed out to begin with. And we're, we're uncertain always at this point in time about what's going to happen and economically. And so, yeah, people hold back whether they have the, the means or not. And I think what the other thing that's really happening that we need to talk about is that nonprofits have been constantly struggling to provide impact reports. Um, what the product that we sell is impact. So if you want to make a difference in education and you have, let's say, $5,000 to give over the course of the year, uh, you can go ahead and try to use that $5,000 directly in the school system and you won't make a drop. You won't make any real things happen. But a $5,000 donation to an organization like LEF can make ten dollars or $20,000 of work happen off that $5,000 because the staff, the people we collaborate with year-round, Um, really amplify those kind of donations to make bigger impacts. So that's the product that we really offer, um, individual donors and corporate donors. But we have struggled and have done a very poor job, I will say, at um, providing that impact for a multitude of reasons. So, I mean, it sounds like what you're you're getting at, and I feel like I've heard other nonprofits talk about this, is there's a sense that funders, right, they want to know that their dollars are going to some specific work, right? And we're often told that, you know, a funder might say, you know, uh, well, I want to get behind a project. I don't want to get behind your operation. So it's hard for a nonprofit to say, just get sustained costs. So for a person to say, you know, okay, well, we're going to spend X amount of dollars on being a wildlife rehabilitator, not necessarily, you know, here's the 5,000 bucks that went to housing that particular animal. I mean, have you found that, that, you know, in terms of how you message to your sponsors, that they're open to the idea that you need ongoing financial support? Or is it, okay, well, we need to see that this... There's dollar for dollar this money is going to fix X number of birds or fund X number of education programs. I mean, we're, it's kind of a different situation with me. Um, 
I just don't feel that people see the need because it's just a bird. It's What do you tell them when they look at it that way? Um, I try to educate them. I mean, I spend the majority of my time on the phone or in public uh, educating people as to why there's a need, um, and especially in the school system with the children. I mean, a lot of these children have never seen wildlife up close other than seeing what they consider a chicken hawk up on a telephone pole. And sometimes, some of it is a little cultural, which I don't want to blame people, but a lot of times people will tell their children, it's just a chicken hawk, shoot it. Um, but they serve a purpose on this earth also. And if we continue to not uh, educate the children, if we continue to not teach people the necessity of these animals in the wild um, and why they need assistance and rehabilitation and release back into the wild and an education program to train the children, then you start causing issues with um, killing off bird of prey, you end up killing off, uh, having an increase of mice population. And then you start ending up with people putting out rat poison, which then creates another cycle that ends up killing the rat, but the rat rolls off and the mouse, uh, hawk eats the rat, the rat, uh, hawk dies. So educating people to let them know why we shouldn't do these things um, needs to start when they're younger. Um, if I had a center set up, it would be really awesome because then I could have school groups come in, do wildlife talks, educate the public as to what's going on, but they don't see the need of the center. It's interesting because it seems like a connection between both of what y'all are doing is dealing with chains of unintended consequences. Exactly. Right, like trying to convince people or educate them or do some kind of outreach that helps them understand, like, no, 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 this is not just about, you know, a, um, a healing an injured bird, right? That, that if we're taking this other approach that there are, uh, there, there are, further consequences down the line. I mean, how, how do you actually communicate that to people? <laughs> it's nearly impossible because the, I, I, I see a lot of similarities between the different works, you know, an injured bird or a struggling child uh, in a school system. It's the repercussions of that is astronomical. And so it sounds crazy when you tell people what happens if we don't invest in our school system. But the truth is, they can look around and see it, you know? We, we've not been doing a great job, statistically speaking. We're 48, 49th competing for second place uh, loser all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, and there's no wonder we're stricken with poverty like crazy, that our, uh, we ups and up and down constantly in our economic situation. So it's it, so it, it feels like banging your head against the wall mm -hmm. because it seems so painfully obvious. And I'm sure it is like the same thing with you. And this was obvious for, to me long before I even got in this position. And um, some people, it's just not their problem. That's how they feel. So it's someone else is going to take care of it for them. We're really plagued with that situation. And really, we need everyone focused on these issues. It, exactly. It's not their problem. It should be someone else's problem. So, yeah, we get a lot of that as wildlife rehabilitators. We get really frustrated, especially when we ask them, you know, people to understand that, we're working full-time jobs, and we're trying to do that on top of have a life and also rehabilitate the animals. And a lot of times we'll get, well, that's your job. It's like, so it's a little frustrating, and especially when you are told you can't bring something to someone and you show up at their house and they're living in a, a house that's much larger and much nicer than you and there's five or six beautiful cars in the front and they're like, okay, there it is, goodbye. Mm. So 
I mean, it's, it would be nice to be able to get people to understand that it takes a society to do this work. It takes people to support us, and it takes people to support locally. Um, a lot of times people will donate to big national corporations that never get us any funding in local level. I mean, locally we are doing it all on our own and we don't get the local support and we sure do not receive any national support from big foundations. Um, so even with school systems, support locally. I mean, help out your school. Parents can go to schools and volunteers. You know, And listen to the things. experts. I think that's another big issue too is when people donate, um, what I see a lot is that they want to buy the shiny thing. They want to buy the thing that gives them the instant gratification, right? So they'll donate to causes that do these fun, cool stuff, like that have a center or that this some, something they almost Instagrammable, right? Like they can pose pictures of them volunteering yeah. on this one day a year, and they're like, I did it. I fixed everything. Right. And I get it. It feels really good to do those kind of things. But sometimes the hard work, you know, the, a lot of the work that we do, we talk to teachers. And teachers know more often than not what the, what their students need and the, the changes that need to happen. And they're doing the work regardless. And so we listen to them and we listen to experts in the school system and we listen to experts outside of the school system. And we're researching and we're, we're paying attention to all the trends and we're doing silly, crazy things like looking at other districts and seeing what they've done. You know, like we're accepting the fact that maybe we don't have all the answers. Right. Um, and you know, there are a lot of organizations that are like that and that's the work that we do. And so if you want to really make a difference, lean into those experts, the ones that are really got their, their finger on the pulse, the ones that are looking at system-wide changes, and, and ask, how can I help? Yeah. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking with Abby Falgu, director of the Lafayette Education Foundation, and Letitia Labe, founder of Acadiana Wildlife Education and Rehabilitation. We'll be right back after the break. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking with Abby Falgu, the executive director of Lafayette Education Foundation, and Letitia Labe, founder of Acadiana Wildlife Education and Rehabilitation. So Abby and Letitia, we're going to change things up just a little bit. Um, this is a segment we call The Job I Might Have Had. So a lot of us end up in careers that we probably wouldn't have imagined for ourselves as kids. Uh, so I'd like to know what job would you have landed in had life worked out differently for you? So, I mean, you know, just to give you an example... Uh, you know, maybe I would have been a famous bass player like Paul McCartney. I don't know. Um, so, Letitia, I mean, if you weren't, I mean, I understand, of course, you're, you're also uh, a teacher um, in addition to doing wildlife rehabilitation. But it, had you not been where you are today, where, where, where else could we have found you? What other business would we be discussing today? Oh, goodness. Um, I actually was an art major uh, at UL. So I would have probably been a starving artist. Um, <laughs> I am right now a starving rehabilitator instead. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I was a child, though, I was always drawn to the animals. So I think in my mind when I was a kid, I wanted to be an anthropologist. I wanted to be someone digging in the dinosaur bones and looking at all that. And then I started taking in the critters instead. Then I wanted to be a wildlife vet. If I had gone to college to become a wildlife vet, I probably would be making a little more money. <laughs> but I'd still be as busy. <laughs> Have you thought about finding a way to combine your interests in art and wildlife rehabilitation? I mean, certainly, historically, nature has been a very, very interesting subject for many artists. I actually do. I do wildlife photography on the side, and I also draw the birds. In fact, one of my professors at UL used to call me the bird lady because every time I turned around, I was turning in 
bird pictures that yeah. I had drawn of the rehab birds that I had in my care. Um, there's just not enough time in a day for me to even sit down and breathe half the time. Yeah. <laughs> to let alone to take a you know time to sit there and color and draw. So I end up multitasking. I have a injured bird sitting in front of me, and then I will sketch it real quick, and then go and take care of the next bird. I wonder. I wonder if you would find good outreach in like the bird watching community, you know, and trying to find supporters and stuff. I mean, there's a huge Facebook groups of these guys, right? And they like love finding you know you know striated bird of whatever site you know. Like, so usually what I run into, and, and, and no offense to anyone, sure. um, bird watching groups uh, would love to come and have free tours and free photographic opportunities yeah. and hands-on with the birds. And under federal law, I can't do any of the above. Um, under federal law, the birds that are in care for rehabilitation purposes cannot be seen by the public cannot be handled by the public and the only way that we can display them would be through videos uh camera setups mm -hmm. and two-way mirrors i can't just allow people to do that so if they're spending their time building their songbirds and, and cages and setups and photographs but I haven't had much support and donations from them, which mm. is kind of strange because you would think they would understand a little bit more. Sure, sure. And I don't know if I just need a marketing director, <laughs> someone to I'd volunteer and, <laughs> and help me with that. But once again, it's the funding. I have to yeah. dis, you know, decide where my funds are best served. Abby, you've, did, you've done a lot of different work in your life, and so uh, I feel like there could be several different trans-dimensional timelines that you would have ended up on. I mean, where else would we have found you if I mean, you not already, here? I already have about 8,000 jobs in any given day already. But um, I think the, the most obvious for me, the most obvious other path, um, I actually almost pursued acting. That was something I was really passionate about before. And um, I studied at NOCA, New Orleans Center of Creative Arts, when I was in high school. And I, I thought I got a scholarship to go to, um, to college for, for theater. And um, I just, oddly enough, another shock for a lot of people is I just don't think I have the ego to really pursue it. You know, it takes a lot of um, chutzpah, as yeah. we would say, you yeah. know, to like put yourself out there a yeah. lot. And I just didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that kind of work. Um, I have a lot of pride in what I do, but surprisingly enough, the ego's all fake. It's all put on. <laughs> I'm really not very self-centered. It seems like, like you to know, stay at home in quiet times. It seems <laughs> like it could be useful to be gregarious in your line of work, you know, which is the right. kind of thing that would draw you to the stage. It is nice to be able to turn it on. I'm an introvert at heart, which people are always shocked by. Um, but yeah, it's nice to be able to turn it on. It's not a fake side of me either. It's just a, something that takes a lot of energy for me to do. But what I have found is performing and acting translates really well to teaching. And that's something I love. I love um, speaking and facilitating workshops and, and teaching adults. And I find a lot of my work that I'm doing, speaking on behalf of the organization and on behalf of other teachers, uh, requires someone kind of putting on a little show for people. And I, so, yeah, so I, I kind of take on that character, I guess. And it, it, it pays off pretty well, the training I've had in the past. I think people often underestimate the degree to which nonprofits really have to sell themselves yes. right and so it's something that's kind of interesting right is you do have a background in marketing PR you know it's something like kind of, I imagine like listening to what Letitia's saying I mean do, is there something you could even recommend in terms of like how to communicate to funders how to communicate to people that 
even having somebody funded to do marketing on her behalf, right, is important. I mean, that's a challenge I mean, that I think all nonprofits actually face, which is like how, how do you, any piece of funding that goes to something that's not programmatic is a waste of money. Right. Um, I wish I had great advice for that. Yeah. Um, I think it's kind of twofold. I think the low-hanging fruit, what I found is easy income, uh, which is not actually all that easy, but it's the easiest we have is... Um, People like buying or contributing to more tangible things. So you were kind of around the money on a, on a center, but I would say, how else can you envision that? Um, how else can you have something that feels more tangible? People will pay three times the amount that it costs to put it on for an experience for something like that. It's not a little takeaway, even a little token of their donation. Mm-hmm. And so we try to do that. Like, how can someone feel um, connected to the work we do after a donation? I think that's a good lesson to really uh, embrace anyway, because. Mm-hmm. Whether you donate $5 or $500,000, you you bought a part of the organization. And so, um, but I think the the bigger picture, and I think what we're kind of talking about, what we're struggling with, is that there is just a general lack of empowerment for funders. And I mean that on every part of the spectrum. So I'm finding major donors, people with, with vast amount of assets, do not feel confident in making a donation um, cash-wise or, you know, some of their private assets they have turning over stocks to an organization. They don't have anywhere to turn to really get good guidance on that. What do you mean by empowerment? So what I see mostly in that, in, the, in that world is the smaller donors. So like people my age group or younger even who have some disposable income, it's not much, but they could do $5, 10 $25 a month even and make huge differences in organizations. But they don't know if that's going to make a difference. They don't know if like, that's the way they should spend their money or should they do this organization or what they should they look for in an organization. Um, and it goes back to that whole, you know, nobody wants to support operations either, which I think is um, an incredible sign that we are, that funders and donors are misguided. Because the truth is, as the people are what make a program powerful. The education that the staff has, the... Um, the time they take to make connections with people that make those, thing, those things happen, right? The collaborations they foster and facilitate. Um, the ways they think outside the box to cut program costs and make a bigger impact. That's what you're really, you know, putting money towards. The, the programs sometimes we find that at the end of the day, they cost very little if you really invest in the people that are putting them on. Letitia, I mean, um, do you find that, that, that it's, even among the folks that let's say that you tend to go to, you mentioned you have some, you know, uh, kind of a core group of folks that you might work with. I mean, do, do, do you find that there are particular things that they're looking for that, that particularly motivate them or animate them that you can expand out to other funders? Um, I wish I could figure out what it is. Uh, just general, the people who do help me are, love wildlife and they would do anything to help them. Um, and I have people who would probably be in the same situation with me where they're eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but they will give me $25 a month to make sure that the birds are getting at least something fed. Um, It would be really awesome if a corporation would love to fund it so that I could be paid. It's been, um, since I was 10 years old, I've never received a penny for the work that I do. If a corporation wanted to sponsor as a so that I could do this as a full-time job, it would give it a little more help where I could actually get out there and do the things that people want. A lot of times people want you to show up at a sponsor uh, party 
with an education bird and do a huge presentation and a wildlife talk in other uh, other states and even other countries the directors of wildlife rehabilitation centers can do that or their education group can do that they can show up at uh, black tie events with a hawk and do photo ops and things like that it's just hard to do on the budget that I have and I have no objection to it if someone would like to pay you know a donation I will gladly come to your black tie event <laughs> and show up with an injured hawk or owl, not an injured but an education hawk or owl and do a wildlife talk is just my time leaving my job at the school if I leave I have to take a personal day I don't get paid for that day and people tend to want me to do it for free. You know, what nonprofits sell is impact, I think, as we've discussed here today. And, and, and what that looks like can vary. A stronger community, a healthier environment, uh, or help for those who can't help themselves. And, and those are expensive products that rarely produce income directly. Um, making them work takes a lot of dedication, persistence, and a real sense of mission, uh, the kind that I think both Abby and Letitia show in their work. And so on that note, Abby and Letitia, thanks so much for joining me on Out to Lunch. Thank you so much. My guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana today have been Abby Falgu, Executive Director of the Lafayette Education Foundation, and Letitia Labe, founder of Acadiana Wildlife Education and Rehabilitation. If you want to put faces to our names and voices, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com and on Out to Lunch Acadiana's social media. These photos were taken by Travis Goche, and you can find more of his photos at zoomphotostudio.com. Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRBS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Morrell. Our associate producer is Molly Richard. Our researchers are Ann Christian and Maggie Mendel. Today's show was engineered by Kieran McIntosh. I'm Christian Mater, editor of The Current, Lafayette's community-owned nonprofit newsroom. For more great stories and conversations, check out thecurrentla.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter. I'll see you again here next week at the French Press in sunny downtown Lafayette for more of the ins and outs and ups and downs of Acadiana business on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Until then, take care. Out to Lunch Acadiana is recorded live over lunch at the French Press in downtown Lafayette. Since 2009, the French Press has been serving Cajun brunch and providing custom catering for uniquely personalized events. The French Press is open seven days a week till 2 p.m. with dishes like Cajun Eggs Benedict and Sweet Baby Breezes. The Out to Lunch Acadiana theme music, Encore Monsieur, Nice Guy, is written by Mitchell Foreman and performed by Mitchell Foreman and Andre Michaud. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Support for Out to Lunch Acadiana comes from the Wyndham Garden Lafayette, located off Pinhook near Cali's Saloon. Wyndham Garden Lafayette is a pet and family-friendly hotel with reception space for large and intimate events, free parking, free Wi-Fi, and a free shuttle within three miles that includes the airport and downtown restaurants.